Mark Shapiro said, hey, we had a guy running ESPN that I think you should talk to. And uh, he gave Dan Snyder my name. And uh, I'll never forget that day when Dan called me and said, hey, I, I want to talk to you. I'm going to send my helicopter. Uh, <laughs> I, ended up, uh, not, I ended up not riding on his helicopter, which I should have figured out a way to do that. But I, I said, look, I, I said, are you going to be in New York anytime soon? I'm already in New York. I don't have to ride your helicopter. He goes, oh, as a matter of fact, I'll be in New York next week. So we got together in person in New York. I should have held out for the helicopter ride. I can't believe you passed on the helicopter ride, man. <laughs> Town president Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio and all of his radio friends. Hey, hey everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. <laughs> My next guest has been named Sports Radio Program Director of the Year three times. He's been recognized in Radio Inc.'s annual list of top programmers. He's also been the recipient of the coveted Andrew Ashwood Award, honoring the broadcaster that made the most positive impact in the radio business. Please welcome the SVP of Sports for Cumulus and Westwood One, Bruce Gilbert. Bruce, thanks for jumping on with me today. Thrilled to do it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You joining us uh, from Dallas, right? I am. Yes. Good old hot Texas. It's a uh, it's a great town. I like it in Dallas. How long have you been there? Uh, this is my second time in Dallas. And I've been back since 2010, so 11 years this time. And uh, the first time was about six. So it's become, I'm almost a certified Texan at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, a good place to be. I was just there a few weeks ago and uh, I'm really a big fan of Dallas. I want to start off by jumping into your childhood because most people I interview, their parents really kind of wanted them to stay away from radio. But you, on the other hand, your entire family was in the business. And this kind of blows my mind, but your father is a broadcaster. His name's Gary Voss. He was in the radio business since 1963. He was a reporter and anchor, uh, did play-by-play. Your brother, Mike, is a market manager for Good Karma in Chicago, and he also launched the Sports Hub in Boston. And then your sister, Becky, hosts afternoons at WIQI in uh, Westaca, Illinois. So what was it like growing up in your childhood? Yeah, my poor mother um you know god bless her we all would you know talk about promotions and quarter hour ratings at thanksgiving and i think she just wanted to talk about anything but uh, <laughs> it was great you know it was it was great i was born in the midwest uh and my dad yeah he took a news job in 1963 and uh, that's the year that president kennedy was shot so he's got oh, wow. some real stories about you know being in the newsroom in a small town radio station you know, when the old AP machine was bells were going off and all kinds of noises were happening on that particular night. But he tells some some great stories from those times. But yeah, I, I grew up uh, around and so did my brother and sister. We grew up, you know, going to hang out at the radio station with my dad. And it was that's where the magic ensued. Right. I mean, you would go into those studios and you'd see. You know, we were just little kids. You'd see these grown men and women speaking into microphones and then you'd imagine where their voice was going. And you would just paint this, you know, unbelievable picture of this this magic technology that allows you to be in everybody's car and in everybody's home. And I just thought it was the coolest thing, you know, to be at a radio station and, and watch people you know, broadcast and speak into a microphone and communicate with people who you knew were out there, but you couldn't see or touch. It was just it, it, early in life. I found it to be fascinating and I've just, and still do to this day. I still love the magic and the intimacy of this medium. That must've been wild to be exposed to it at such an early age. So for you, it's always really been kind of normalcy. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it has. And I think, 
you know, not only was it normal because my dad was so gracious to let us, you know, hang out with him at the office, um, but I think it, it also inspired, you know, this this career for all three of us, for my sister and my brother and me. We we looked at it and we said, you know, this is this is something we can do that we, you know, we've learned a lot from our dad and it's a career and it's fun. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it turned into, you know, all three of us making a living this way. And, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty special. Uh, and I feel pretty lucky. I know a lot of, a lot of my friends struggled with, you know, what were they going to do when they grew up, you know, and I, from the time I was five years old, I just wanted to talk up the ramp to a hit song and nail the post. That's all I wanted to do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so as your dad, and I know you and your dad are very close. I remember you telling me a story a few years ago when the Cubs finally won the world series. I think you were on the road somewhere. So you were in a hotel room, but you were watching the, uh, the, the game that they clinched together. And, uh, it w- was very emotional. I recall for both of you. I think you cried even on the phone. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah. I mean, I, there, that was amazing. I was in Birmingham, Alabama with our great team at Jocks FM, uh, spending some time with them. And, uh, you know, I booked the trip as a lifelong Cubs fan saying to myself, you know, yeah, they're good, but they'll blow it. They'll never make it to the world series. They'll never win. I'm going to go ahead and book this trip and go to Birmingham. And I watched game six in the a garden in a Hilton garden Inn, all by myself, which I think was actually wonderful because had they lost, I probably would have, you know, broken something. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, after the uh, amazing rain delay, uh, when the Cubs then came back and won it, yeah, I got my brother and my dad on the phone and I don't think we talked for five minutes. We just sobbed, uh, you know, it's just, it was oh, just wow. amazing. I mean, that's another thing. My dad gave me radio and the Cubs, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, so it's been a long, it's been a, it was a long time coming. And I, I mean, it just meant so much because we bonded through radio and baseball all my life. Uh, not that we didn't bond in other ways because he's an amazing man, but we, we bonded on those two things. That was always the points of conversation, radio and, and the Chicago Cubs. And uh, I wouldn't be here without him. I wouldn't have half the ability to do what I do without him. And then for, for that to happen, you know, he just, I think he had decided that it wasn't going to happen in his lifetime, that the Cubs were going to win a World Series. So for him to get to experience that was, it was a remarkable, remarkable moment. And and one of those moments that, you know, we're talking about radio, but one of the reasons I feel so lucky to be in sports radio is because of the way sports unites us and the way sports, you know, brings us together and the, the way sports becomes, you know, that, that talking point and those memorable moments that you share and and uh, that's one I'll, I'll never forget as long as I live. So that was it was pretty cool. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. No, I love just a, a beautiful story, and I just really love hearing about your childhood and the fact that all of you did. All, do you have a sibling that's not in the business, or you all went into the business? No, I'm the middle child. My sister's the oldest. She's the biggest ham. She's the you know. Mike and I have both gone the management route. I mean, Mike was really good as a disc jockey. He was a really good on air talent. I was horrible on the air. That's why I knew I had to get into management it just it wasn't it wasn't my forte and so i i've always been fascinated by the analytics and the research and the data and the ratings and and i i have that more of that brain function uh, my sister is a complete and total ham she's you know she's hilarious she's a great storyteller and she's always just done small market radio and been a huge fish in a small pond she's beloved and uh, so she's still on the air. Mike and I have kind of gone the management route, but we've all, thanks to our dad, 
you know, done all aspects of the business. I mean, all I wanted to do was be on the air. And uh, when my dad owned a radio station in Wisconsin and we were all working for him, he said, I'm not going to let you be on the air unless you also sell advertising, which I thought, oh, my God, I got to go out and sell. And he <laughs> gave me a list. And I was, you know, I was 17 years old, I think, and in a small town in Wisconsin going out and calling on these little, you know, automotive parts dealers, bar owners, car dealers. And it was a, it was a great education. I didn't like it. Uh, you know, I, I did okay. Uh, but what I got from it more than anything was a huge appreciation for how difficult that job is. And I will never look down on a salesperson in my entire career because what they do is so hard and they get told no so much and I just respect people that are really, really good at that. And I, thankfully, I get to work with some that are the best in the business. And I, I admire them. And I know that without them, we aren't a complete business unit. So I, that, and I learned that lesson young, again, thanks to my dad. I, uh, I agree completely. My ex-wife is an account executive. She sold for uh, KFI for many years. And it is an incredibly tough job. And I actually recommend to all air talent, if you've not gone out and sold yourself, you really should go out with an AE and make a few calls with them and kind of experience it because it is, it's incredibly challenging. And I think it's also important to see just the needs of the clients and what we can do as an industry to better serve them and ultimately get them the results that they want and need. That's the best point of all Chachi is, you know, I, I think that that's what I learned more than anything is we have all these preconceived assumptions or just beliefs of what the client needs. The client needs this, or we should do that for the client. And, you know, the truth is you don't have any idea what the client wants, needs, or expects unless you speak with them one-to-one. And I think one of the things I love about the way sports radio has evolved is that to me, and I guess you could argue this, it is the number one format for advertising endorsements. And the air talent on sports stations are terrific spokespeople for the advertisers that they represent. And in many cases, especially in the biggest markets, those air talent and those clients have become friends, you know, over the years they have bonded and, and they've maintained this relationship that is valuable from a business perspective, but they have these personal relationships that makes that business relationship thrive because the air talent has a real understanding of what may, what makes the business work for that particular client, however it might be. And uh, I think that that's, I think that's really cool and a unique aspect, not a unique aspect, all other formats do endorsements, but sports, I think has really led the way in, in doing that in a really meaningful way. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. And there's something that I, I have so much respect for sports and the format as a whole, because it's something that the entire family can enjoy and be part of. And it really kind of transcends, just like you were talking about your father, generations and families can be generational fans of the, of the Cubs or whoever it may be. And it really becomes part of a legacy and something that the family kind of uh, believes in and can all do together. And there's not a lot of those things, I think, left anymore in uh, at least not to the same degree as I'd like to see in our society. So I've got a lot of respect for sports and what you guys do for the community and for also uh, families as a whole. Thanks. Yeah, I think that I think that's true. You're right. Some of the old traditions of, you know, gathering around the TV for primetime television shows or, you know, having dinner with the whole family to set time, you know, those have become more and more difficult as the years have gone by. But when you're in the car. You know, now I have a 12 year old son and he's in the car with me and I'm listening to sports radio and, you know, he's picking up things and becoming a fan based on those things. And those become talking points for me and him uh, as father and son. So it, it, it is 
you know, I, I don't want to over romanticize it or make it too nostalgic, but it, it's a connection yeah. point. It truly is. Very, very well put. So you obviously got a phenomenal upbringing from your father. He mentored you and your, your, uh, both your other, your siblings, and you get your first gig as a board operator, uh, for the broom dusters, which is, uh, <laughs> was a hockey team, which I think is now defunct, uh, but, uh, in uh, Binghamton, New York, and you were just 14 years old. So tell me a little bit about that gig. So, yeah, uh, I do think the hockey team still exists. They're just not called the broom dusters anymore. Binghamton, New York is in Broome County, New York. And uh, that is also the home of a cartoonist by the name of Johnny Hart, I believe, who did a cartoon strip uh, that featured these characters from Broome County. And uh, that's where the dusters came from. And as part of my dad's job, this was the other romantic part of radio, right? He was the general manager of this radio station for Stoner Broadcasting Company in Binghamton, New York. This was back in the 70s when general managers had cars as a perk. He had a country club membership as a perk, and he had season tickets to the minor league hockey team, which we broadcast on WNBF, the station that he was the general manager for. And so, yeah, I was a sports fan, and we went to all the hockey games, so I was a Duster fan, so I I loved that. I was fascinated by -by play-by-play, and so I got to listen to the games while board-hopping them and playing commercials on, on carts. Uh, the hardest part of the job is we had one of those giant cart machines. Some of you will remember this, that, that was like a one minute, just rotating loop, constantly recording. And if the dusters scored a goal, you had to stop that. So you'd have the goal for your post game show. And however many goals they had, you'd have stacked up for the post game show, you know, goals one through X for the right, dusters. Right. And you had to go back and replay that piece of play by play. Cause we didn't have time to splice it with a razor blade and put it back together. We just would save it on these carts. But the real truth is I, I always prayed for and wished for really short games because the games typically started at seven o'clock and my shift didn't end until 10. So if the game got over at nine 30, that meant I got to play 30 minutes of music and I got to talk up you know, <laughs> and be a disc jockey, you know, with my little, you know, my, my little pre-puberty voice that nobody wanted to hear on the radio. Uh, but that's what I prayed for because I loved, I love board hopping the room dusters game, but I really wanted to talk about Billy Joel song. That's what I really wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> so your first passion was actually doing music radio. That's what you wanted to do. Yeah, no question. I mean, again, yeah, and I, you know, there wasn't all sports radio then. I mean, people may not realize that, but I'm old. You know, back in the 70s, I mean, ESPN wasn't even on yet. ESPN didn't go on until 1979, you know. Uh, the talk stations, most of them that I liked listening and learning from had a sports show, oh. typically like 6 to 8 p.m. That was like the thing. They would do talk all day, 6 a to 6 p. And then there would be a local sports talk host from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. that would talk about sports. But yeah, I was... I was all about top 40 radio, man. I was born in Illinois, grew up on WLS, um, used to sit in my dad's car in the driveway and dial up AM radio stations across the country and listen to, you know, radio stations from, from New York to Little Rock, Arkansas, to Denver, wherever they would come in from, you know, some of those 50,000 waters at night. And so WLS was my, that was the radio station that I dreamed of. It was, you know, that's the one I listened to under my pillow every night with the transistor radio was WLS and the rock of Chicago and the jocks and the tempo and the pace and the production and the promotions. And again, it was all just, it was bigger than life to me. It was magic. Such an 
incredible radio station. Is that how you initially became a Cubs fan is in your connection to Chicago was through WLS? No, no I, I blame my dad for that one too. You know, I was born in <laughs> Illinois. My dad, my dad moved all over the place. He was from Iowa, but he was a Cubs fan. And so, uh, you know, we were, we were really lucky when we were little, they would, you know, my parents would try to take us to Wrigley field, you know, once a year. And so that became a passion. And the other thing is WGN television. I mean, I lived in, you know, little towns when I was in kindergarten in Niles, Michigan, my dad was working in Niles, Michigan at the time, you know, I would come home from kindergarten and the Cubs were on every day because they didn't have any lights at Wrigley Field. They played all afternoon games. Right. So the game would start at 1.15, 1.20 and I would, I would be home from school at three and get to see, you know, the last four or five innings every single day and uh, just fell in love with, with that and, and with them and with baseball in general. And so, yeah, it was a big part of it. And, you know, before I go any further, I don't want to give my mom a short trip. My mom was an amazing mother and she kept us all in line, uh, including my dad. <laughs> so, yeah, the, I, I've never, I've never met your parents or your siblings, but I got to believe your mom was the only normal one. So thank God for her. <laughs> she's an amazing lady, a farmer's daughter from Illinois. Uh, and she just, you know, she's a, a great cook and she was, you know, different generation. She wanted to be home with us kids. But when my dad bought, when my dad got into ownership, I'll tell you what my mom was. She was in charge of collections, man. And you did not want to be late paying our radio station. Uh, just, as she was, just as she was in charge of discipline of us three kids, she was in charge of collections at the radio station. And boy, there were some people around town that'd be like, hey, I talked to your mom last week. I don't ever want to get that call again. I'd be like, yeah, you don't. You better pay. You don't want to get that call again. Uh, but yeah, she's an amazing lady. And I'm so blessed. They're both in good health. My mom's 78. My, mom, my dad is 80. Uh, you know, they're doing remarkably well and, and we're blessed to still have them in our lives for sure. Oh man, that's, that's fantastic. And I'm sure they've got to be really proud of all three of you. What, uh, incredible careers that you've had. I mean, your brother, uh, major market, uh, general manager, um, in Chicago and, um, also part of the sports hub, your sister, uh, incredible success, you know, very successful host and you, and I'm really excited to get into the rest of your career here. I mean, you've really reached the pinnacle of, uh, of sports radio. So I've got to believe, uh, they're, they're pretty, they, they look back at, at you guys and are very proud. Yeah, I, I hope so. And I think so. I mean, I, we have such a huge respect for the way they raised us. And I think that is returned by them to us and their pride and, you know, how they, how they uh, talk to their, their friends about, you know, where we are and what we do and what we've been able to do in our lifetimes. And we've all been uh, really lucky. So, and, you know, look, the, it starts with the parents and how you were brought up. And we were so fortunate to have such a good upbringing but there's been a lot of, uh, you know, I think my brother would say this. I've talked about many of his. And for me, too, there's been a lot of mentors and people who took us under their wing, to and gave us chances uh, in this business that uh, have, you know, panned out. And uh, so that, that that's all part of the good fortune as well. Before we get into the rest of your career, I'm going to go on a little bit of a, I guess, a tangent here for a second. But you brought up the Cubs. And I was interviewing Tracy Johnson a few months ago. I don't know if you know Tracy or not, but a great program. I do. Huge fan of Tracy's. Such a good guy. He and a mentor of mine, he grew up a Atlanta Braves fan and he credited, and I believe he grew up in Nebraska, but somewhere not near the Braves or that close to the Braves. But when he would get home from school, they would be on Turner Broadcasting. And so he was exposed to the Braves that way. And the Cubs had a very similar relationship with WGN. So people all around the country were exposed to the Cubs. Do you think that that's kind of missing today where you would have a gigantic network that would broadcast 
past one team throughout the country in regards to kind of famdom? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I, I recall exactly what you're talking about. It almost seems like those were the two America's teams, the Braves and the Cubs, and they were both on super stations. And that's what they called them. WGN was a super station. TBS was a super station. And uh, the access to those teams was phenomenal. You know, there weren't these regional sports networks at the time. So those two were the breakthrough teams. And it also made huge personalities out of their broadcasters. You know, Jack Brickhouse for the Cubs sure. and Harry Carey. And, uh, of course, Skip Carey for the Braves and Don Sutton. And I, I became, as I started to become a fan of broadcasting, I really started to fall in love with these crews and getting a chance to, you know, hear them. And I remember watching the Cubs in the afternoon and the Braves at night and, and really learning from those broadcasters as well. But, yeah, that's, you know, all I think that's just part of the saturation of sports in general. Right. I think two things. One. You know, you don't have those teams that stand out because they're getting more exposure, but you also don't have players staying on the same teams for a long time like they did then as well, True. which has really changed that. So, yeah, those things are missing. But I rather than look back on that and say, oh, those were the good old days and becoming, you know, the get off my lawn guy. I, I think that's just part of the evolution of sports. It's it's still a remarkable piece of social currency. That's how I look at sports and sports radio, right? There's a, there's a social currency aspect of sports that is unlike anything but the weather. You know, uh, it's, it's something that you can almost talk to anybody about. It's apolitical most times. And considering what we've been through in the last 19 months to find something that's not politicized, and that's what I love about stadium is being full again, man. I mean, you know, if I'm at a Cubs game and uh, and and uh, Wilson Contreras, I had to pick a Cub that's still on the team because they traded everybody away. <laughs> Wilson, <laughs> no, you if guys. Wilson Contreras, if Wilson Contreras hits a home run and I turn to the woman on my right and give her a high five. I don't care if she's Democratic or Republican or where she grew up or what religion she is. I just know that in that moment. We're both Cub fans. Yeah. And that's a huge part of what's missing in our world right now, man. It's just the things that we, we are so focused on the things that divide us. We're not enjoying the things that bring us together. And the beauty of watching sports again now with a full stadium is seeing that, seeing people from different backgrounds high-fiving and hugging when their team scores a touchdown or hits a home run and not worried about whether you have this position on masks or that position on politics. And, uh, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. I hope we can get back to appreciating that more so as, as we come out of this horrible pandemic. That is such a great point. We forget that we're all on the same team. Yeah. And uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. You're, ab you're absolutely right. Let's get into your you leave town. You've, you've been now with your family. Now you take your first gig uh, out, out of state. You go to Lake Charles, Louisiana. Tell me about that. So, yeah, there was a few there were a few stops along the way. Uh, you know, I had to, the, the bio it would have taken you a week to read the bio if I put every little tiny radio station on there. But uh, I actually went away to, to work at a station in a little town called Danville, Illinois, okay. which is the home of. Uh, Jerry and Dick Van Dyke, by the way, uh, that was my first job away from oh, wow. my, yeah, that was the first job away from my family. And the great thing, the cool thing about that job, my dad was once the sales manager at WITY in Danville, Illinois. And that was my first job where I didn't work for my dad. Um, and it was, you know, a chance for me to, to get away and see what it was like. I lived by myself. I was there for a while. 
I ended up going back to Wisconsin to work for my parents because I, I had some health issues at that time that thankfully are long gone. And uh, but and then I I was uh, I went to yeah Lake Charles, Louisiana, to do mornings. That's when I was still on the air, still thinking I was going to be a star. Um, and uh, that was fantastic. And this is one of the things you know people say you you move a lot or you know, you move around as a radio person. I have zero regrets about the moves I made because I will tell you that it's given me a chance to experience different cultures, different places, different people, different ways that, that people go about their lives. I mean, I, you know, I, again, I was pretty sheltered, grew up in a, you know, with a a great set of parents, but I was all Midwest based. We, I mean, we moved a few places with my dad's job, but we had this very Midwest centric lifestyle, um, and you know, Louisiana, first of all, I'd never tasted food like that it was the greatest food in the world in Louisiana. Uh, <laughs> but then the mindset, like I was, I was doing remotes in the morning, like six to 10 in the morning and guys would pull up in pickup trucks with coolers full of beer saying, Hey, you want a beer? I'm like, it's eight o'clock in the morning, man. Well, <laughs> come to find out those guys were, worked on oil rigs and they would be like 10 days on 10 days off. Oh. So they'd be on the rig for 10 straight days. Then they'd come home. Well, it was 10 days of getting caught up on, you know, partying and having fun. <laughs> and they're like, hey, we're back from the rig. We're having a good time until we got to go back out in the middle of the ocean. And it was, again, you just learn things about people and you learn to appreciate those different cultures and those different upbringings. The other thing that was amazing about Louisiana is uh, is everybody knows how to cook. I mean, the, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. If you grow up in Louisiana, your parents teach you how to cook. The guys can cook. The women can cook. The food is, it's the best. Uh, so that was a, that was a great experience. And it was a you know a small town operator uh, who had very high standards. I think at the time I thought they were kind of strict, and now I look back and think they were. It was so perfect for me to have that kind of structure. Uh, Al and Dixie Johnson were their names. She used to be in the rep business and, uh, they were just, they were an amazing family and they did radio in Lake Charles, Louisiana, like it was in, you know, Houston or Dallas or Los Angeles or New York. It was big time. And they, they expected the best and they pushed us all hard. And, and, uh, that was a a great experience. I was there for three years and I I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And you were doing the mornings the whole time. I was, I said, somehow I managed to stay in mornings that whole time. (laughs) So, uh, thanks to a lot of bad comedy services. What was, I mean, what was that like? (laughs) Did you have a co-host around you or a producer? Were you doing it solo? No, I was doing it solo. We were, you know, we were very music intensive. I did, uh, you know, do some bits with the midday person and, you know, we, we tried to goof off a little bit and have some fun, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a top 40 station, Bayou 104, KBIU. And, uh, you know, we had a great time. We were very promotionally involved. We did a ton of stuff in the community. And again, that was the owners. They were so involved. And so uh, you met everybody and, and you got out on the street a lot. And, uh, you know, that's where you, that's where you learn it all. You know, that's, that's where it all happens. So it was, uh, again, I have no regrets. All these experiences add up to you know, what shapes you about how you treat people and how you look at the world. And, and so I, I, uh, I have great memories of all of those things and I feel like I learned a lot. And that's another thing about the moving. I just, you know, the day I stopped learning, I I don't want to be here anymore. I just think that every time you can learn about people and culture and places, it makes you a better person. 
I love that attitude and that hunger for knowledge and, and for experience. I know you've had, uh, you had several other stops along the way. Walk me through a few of the highlights. And I mean, you've worked at some uh, legendary radio stations, obviously the ticket, uh, KLIF, uh, you were in Pittsburgh at uh, VTY, um, fill me in on a few of the highlights and some of the lessons you learned at some of those stops. Yeah, I'll be happy to. And again, the people you meet and work with, you know, again, you know, they sort of, they sort of paint the picture for you and help you understand you know good leaders it's interesting i think that they teach you you know many things that you can take with you and use in a positive way and i think every leader teaches you a thing or two that you would rather not do when you get a chance to be a leader like you see it and you know how it makes you feel when you're like hey and i was always that guy i was always taking notes like i i love this about this person if i ever get in their job i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna steal that and make it my own And I really hate when this person or dislike when this person talks to someone like that. I'm going to make a note of that because I I think there's a better way to deliver that message, you know, and maybe if I ever get a chance to be a manager, I'll, I'll avoid that. But just back to your question specifically, I was in Lake Charles for three years, uh, went over to Bryan College Station, Texas, had a chance to work for a great gentleman by the name of Bill Hicks, part of the Hicks family. If you remember Steve Hicks and SFX, Steve was the first one to do an LMA. That was Bill's brother. Okay. Uh, and then his, his other brother, when I got to Dallas, was the owner of the Dallas Stars and the part owner of the Texas Rangers. So the, But I worked for Bill Hicks, who is a great family man and was the manager of WTAW and Star 92 in, in College Station, Texas. I was only there for a little while because I got an opportunity to go to Charleston, West Virginia to work for V100, which was owned by Capital Broadcasting. There were a couple of different Capital Broadcastings back then. Uh, And the reason I did that is the woman I was married to at the time was from West Virginia. So it was a chance for us to go back to where she grew up. And, uh, and, and we had uh, a daughter at that time. And, and so, uh, and then had another daughter when we were in Charleston. So I I went to V100 WVAF, had a chance to work with a legendary morning guy by the name of Steve Bishop. And I was still on the air. I was still kind of following that music dream. I wanted to do music radio and uh, I applied for an open job at uh, Pittsburgh at, at W. It wasn't WVTY at the time. It was still Gold 96. And they had a program director opening. And uh, here's a guy I owe a lot to, too. The general manager there was a, guy named, uh, was a guy named Jim Carter. And it was Hearst Broadcasting. And, uh, you know, he had the courage and the guts to interview this little podunk PD from Charleston, West Virginia. And uh, in the way it happened was I didn't get a call from them, uh, but Pittsburgh was close enough. I got in the car, put my family in the car, and booked a hotel in Green Tree, Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh. And I sat in a hotel room for about a day and a half and listened to the radio station and took notes. And then I sent all those notes to Jim Carter and got the interview. Uh, and uh, and now I got the interview. Oh, no. So that's it. <laughs> That took a tremendous amount of initiative. So he didn't invite you to be interviewed. You went there on your own accord, paid to get a hotel room, listened to the station for a day and a half, and then sent him the notes. Basically, uh, he didn't request those He notes. didn't request those. I typed up everything I heard, told him what I liked, what I didn't like, what I would change. Little did I know they were planning on changing the format, but still, 
I, I wanted to show the effort and how much it meant to me and, and how, how I believed I was ready for it because there was a big piece of me that said, oh my God, I'm not ready for Pittsburgh. That's major market, but okay, I got to prove it to myself. So I'm going to go listen and see if I can pick up anything. And if I do, I'll share them with the general manager and see what happens. So he brought me in and interviewed me and, and hired me. And, uh, and that was, that was an amazing experience. You know, I, I got to work with the legendary Alan Burns who, uh, was the consultant for the station. And we flipped it from gold 96 to variety. 96 became one of three variety stations in the country really had an, an amazing amount of success. Thanks in large part to those people around me, because I was still learning how to be a good program director. It was the first place I went where we had a union. So I wasn't allowed to be on the air. So that was kind of my forced off the air situation, which was good. Um, and I, I went full time into management. And as it turns out, there was a really intelligent and amazing program director of our AM station, WTAE, a guy named Tom Clendenning. And Tom, uh, I learned so much from Tom, just a super smart guy. He's still doing radio. He's a, he's a part of the NPR family out in Everett, Washington. Uh, I haven't stayed in touch, as, in touch as much as I should, but Tom was running WTAE. And uh, he got an opportunity to leave town and, and left. And uh, I just went down the hall and said, Jim, I know I'm not qualified, but I want to learn more if there's any chance I can be part of WTA or just help you in the interim while you hire somebody. And he took me up on that. He gave me a chance to learn spoken word radio. Uh, you know, we carried the Steelers, which we carried the Steelers on the AM and the FM. At that time, ESPN radio was on on Saturday and Sunday nights. And we carried that because there was no sports radio. And so I kind of fell in love with those things. And uh, it turns out, you know, Jim made the decision to put me over both radio stations. And that's sort of where my love for the spoken word came in. Uh, and when I, that, her sold those radio stations. And so it was, it was a pretty precarious situation as sales can be at times. And uh, so I uh, started looking around and I got an opportunity to come to Dallas at that point. That was 97 when I left. Uh, really quick before we get into Dallas, if you don't mind, yeah. Pittsburgh was transitional on a few levels. One, you went into Pittsburgh really as a morning show host and wanting to be on air, but you made the transition into programming in Pittsburgh on your own initiative. You drove to town, air checked the radio station, send these great notes to the general manager, which I'm sure had to knock his socks off. I would I, imagine. I don't, know if they were great. I don't know if they were great or not. I think at the time I thought they were, I, I would be afraid to see them now, but <laughs> it worked. <laughs> and so probably I'm guessing from your upbringing and your father and, you know, having a mentor like that in the business, you were groomed in a lot of ways to be a programmer, maybe not even knowing it. Would, would that be correct? Yeah, I think so. I, I think groomed probably without even realizing it, it was kind of inherent in, in my blood, you know, from being around him and, you know, hearing the, you know, picking up on his knowledge. But I also think, you know, at this point, you know, this was, uh, you know, I went to Pittsburgh in 91. I've been, I've been, you know, doing smaller market radio for 10 years. I think it was a natural gravitation too, Chachi. I think, you know, I just started realizing the things that I had real passion for were a lot of them were really little things like the order that the commercial should play in. Like I would sweat over that. Like I want the sixties first and I want the really hot jingles first. And then I want it to go down to the thirties and the fifteens. And I want the crappiest commercials at the end. You know, I mean, I, I cared about that stuff. I mean, it's nerdy as hell, but I, 
that was the stuff I cared about. Or why do they play a jingle there? I mean, I would listen to radio stations and be like, I would never put a jingle there. Why are they playing a jingle before that or before the DJ talks or, you know, and, and, uh, and I just was always, you know, obsessed about the order of things and the detail of things. Sure. So yeah, this, this gave me a chance, I think, to, when I made that transition and I got off the air, it also became about, you know, better music scheduling because suddenly you weren't worrying about doing a four or five hour air shift every day. Right. So uh, it gave me a chance to really dive into the details of, you know, wanting to make every quarter hour count and wanting to make every promo, you know, get as much exposure as the client, as the, as the top client on the radio station and understanding rotations and, you know, points per week and things like that, you know, and just, it, it, I became, and that's just, that's, that's, that's me. And some, sometimes, you know, my wife would say to an OCD extent, but that's, that's who I am and what I'm all about. But I, I think you nailed it. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. As I came off the air to take the job in Pittsburgh, it's when I really maybe subconsciously more than consciously started really dialing into programming and like just the passion for it and the love for it. I mean, to be on the station that's carrying the Steelers, I mean, that's another, I mean, American franchise and a city that takes football incredibly seriously. So I imagine the details had to be really right at that radio station. Yeah, it, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was overwhelming. I mean, I, again, I, I still to this day think I'm just a, you know, small town kid from a small place in Illinois. And uh, I try not to you know, take for granted the opportunities I've had. And I, I, Pittsburgh was when some of that really started to crystallize. I mean, when you're in a room with the Rooney family, you know, talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers, and then you go to Latrobe, Pennsylvania to training camp, and you're standing next to, you know, Bill Cower and, and uh, you know, these players that, that are, you know, are bigger than life. And, you know, you're part of it. You know, it's like, I, I got goosebumps. And the Rooney family talk about learning from a family. I mean, they're, they're so generous and just an amazing part of that community. And, you know, I, again, I grew up with all Chicago sports allegiances, the Cubs being the deepest. And, uh, I will tell you, sorry, Chicago bears. I, I became the biggest Pittsburgh Steelers fan ever living there those seven years, because I got to see how they ran their franchise wow. and how they treated people and, and the culture and what winning meant to them. And yes, that did translate to our radio station. It's a great point. When you partner with people like that, it becomes part of your culture too, because they raise the bar for everybody, right? There's an expectation. And if we got, if we got screwy or did something wrong or said something wrong, they weren't jerks about it, but they would point it out. They would be like, that's, that's not how we treat that player. That's not what we would say about that player. Never told us what we could or couldn't do but sent their message in a very clear way in that, in that regard. And, uh, yeah, very, very lucky to be part of that. And, uh, and it was really cool, <laughs> really cool. Uh, in fact, I wanted one amazing of the, opportunity. Yeah, One of the coolest things I did before I moved to Dallas, the, the summer before the Steelers actually played in Dublin. If you remember, they were doing those preseason games overseas. And I do. as part of the radio family, we, we got to go with the Steelers to, to Ireland and it was a trip of a lifetime. And again, what other business gives you a chance to do stuff like that, right? It's sure. like, God, this is fantastic. Uh, so been, been very lucky. And that predates, I think they're going to do a two, is it two NFL games now over in uh, England this year? Yeah. And they've been, you know, they've done a great job at that series. The NFL has, they, you know, they've got this new stadium 
team in London now. So, uh, you know, I, I love that they're they're doing that. And uh, yeah, those back then it was a, like a preseason game that meant nothing, but now they're doing these regular season games there that have become part of the fabric of the NFL, which is pretty cool. Yeah. No, I think it's exciting. I know that we uh, there was a few games I believe in Mexico, uh, MLB games, uh, which I think were you know a great idea. And then we did the uh, the MLB did the Field of Dreams uh, game a few weeks ago, which I thought was fantastic. And I guess that was the uh, highest ratings for a televised game uh, since a World Series several years back, which was pretty cool to see. I thought they nailed it. Again, I'm an old sap. I'm in the demographic for Major League Baseball. I love that movie. I know a lot of people criticize the movie, but I think it's fantastic. It's a father-son movie. It's a, you know, it's a baseball movie. It's, you know, it plays to all my, you know, romantic sensitivities. So I I love the movie and I I thought baseball brought it to life. And then on top of it, they got an amazing game, you know, with the Yankees going ahead in the top of the ninth and the White Sox, you know, uh, the White Sox walking it off in the bottom of the ninth. My brother, actually, the White Sox are on his radio station in Chicago. He was there. And uh, I mean, he. He, he talked about how you know there were there were tears there were goosebumps there were cheers it was uh, it was magical and uh, yeah I just I hope they can continue that tradition and next year the Cubs are playing in it so it's the Cubs and Reds next year so. I've got to find a way. If anybody, uh, if any of your great podcast fans has a hookup for tickets, uh, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. You, we brought the game up, but Kevin, uh, who produces the show for us and also a, a gigantic sports fan, he's a huge Raiders and, uh, uh, well, Anaheim angels, Los Angeles angels now, uh, fan. Uh, but we were just talking about that game and just what a massive success it was. And I think we both agree with you completely. Incredibly, uh, incredibly romantic. And uh, I think great for, uh, great for the game and just great for, uh, uh, families uh, really quickly. And just, you brought up your brother and I do want to take a quick tangent there. I know that he works for uh, good karma, which is Mel Karma's and son, correct? correct? That owns good karma. Yep, Craig Carmeson. Yes. Craig. And I hear phenomenal things about, uh, that, that company. I ran into uh, Wexler, uh, Steve Wexler, who is the general manager for the Milwaukee cluster. So he's your brother's counterpart up in Milwaukee. And he had told me at Lambeau field that they own, a few houses at Lambeau and they'll bring listeners up to Lambeau and do these really cool kind of experiential uh, uh, events up there, which I think is just fantastic. And if you've not been to Lambeau, that may not sound as cool as it is because you have to realize that those houses are, I mean, they are literally across the street from the stadium. I mean, they, at any other stadium, they would be in the parking lot. That's how close they are to Lambeau Field. Uh, so, yeah, uh, look, I, I can't say enough good things about Craig. I mean, my brother loves working for him. And my brother has worked for, you know, back in the day, it was Clear Channel. Uh, he worked many, many years for CBS and then uh, for a couple of years with Beasley before leaving Boston. And it's a whole different vibe. It's a very small company. Uh, and Craig is, uh, you know, a terrific leader. Um, him and Steve, who run it, Steve is his partner, who's down in West Palm. And uh, I think the, I think this is what, this is, this speaks for itself. And I won't give any names because I don't know him and I'll forget some people. But I remember talking to my brother, you know, his first week there in Chicago working for Good Karma. And I think he told me that every person he met had been there a minimum of 10 years and several people had been with them for 20 years. And, uh, that just says a lot about a company right there. Talk about culture. He's, he's, it's a very people first company. Um, but also one that, you know, has diversified beyond just, you know, 
advertising and done a really good job on the digital space. And so it's, it's a good company and talk about good genes. My God, Craig coming from Mel, you know, Mel is, is an sure. industry legend, you know, and, uh, Craig, by the way, looks exactly like him, uh, which is, which is eerie. <laughs> so, uh, but he's, he's great people. I'm a huge fan of Craig Carmazin. I love, uh, you know, I come from Mark. I'm a programmer as you know, but I've always really been a marketing guy at heart. And I just love to see radio stations do these bigger than life promotions. And here's like a once in a lifetime experience to go and stay at this house, literally right across the street from Lambeau and have this, you know, talking about sacred ground, that stadium and obviously the Packers. And I just love to see those things. And the fact that they did something, you know, in Iowa for the, uh, the field of dreams experience. And I think that unfortunately as a whole, a lot of the industry has gotten away from doing these bigger than life promotions and these once in a lifetime type opportunities for our listeners. And I think those go a long way. Couldn't agree more. I think that's been one of, you know, radio still does really well in some traditional ways, particularly in the car. Uh, we know it works with advertisers. You know, we see it all the time. We make cash registers ring, but I, I agree with you. I think the one thing we've gotten away from is the, the, Oh wow. Promotions just kind of like the, and, and by the way, the great ones are the ones that get dreamt up in the morning and are on the air in the afternoon, because typically they're tied to something very topical, right? Yeah. There's just something going on in your town. And it's like, we should do something about that. Uh, and you know, I, I told you I work for Bayou 104 in, in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I was lamenting this recently because I worked there with a guy who's one of our sports PDs now, Chris Baker, at the Sports Animal in Oklahoma City. And Chris was actually my boss in Lake Charles. So it's, you know, again, small fraternity. Um, but I, back in the late 80s, I guess, when I was in Louisiana, mid 80s, Boeing was down to three locations for possible plants for their building of a certain airplane. And uh, Lake Charles was one of those cities that was on the list. They didn't end up getting it, but it was a huge story because Lake Charles isn't that big of a town. And so, I mean, this isn't the most unique idea ever. It's stolen. But one weekend we became Boeing 104 instead of Boeing 104. <laughs> That's awesome. And we decided that on a Wednesday and we did it on Friday, you know, because it was in the news. And it was it, sure. it didn't cost a lot of money, but it got all kinds of buzz. Every television station showed up to record us saying it. And, yeah. You know, we put we put airplanes behind every sweeper and. You know, I think uh, we gave away in, like inflatable airplanes and paper airplanes. And I mean, it was just it was silly. But it, again, that's that's the magic. And I don't hear it enough anymore either, Chachi. I think yeah. it's it's one of the things we always did. You would find a wacky promotion. and You go, oh, I wonder what radio station did it. Now you find a wacky promotion and then you trace it back and you're like, oh, it's not even a radio station. It's a company or it's right. somebody else. It's like, why aren't we doing that stuff? You know, No, it's a great story. I love that. Thank you uh, for sharing. It. I, in my apologies, I cut you off as you were getting ready to talk about Dallas. So walk me through how you got to Dallas and uh, that jump from Pittsburgh. Well, you didn't cut me off. It's, I love the I love moving around and having the conversation, and I, I appreciate it. And uh, I think Dallas Dallas was an interesting time in my career uh, because I, I loved Pittsburgh, and and it was a great place to raise a family. Pittsburgh's an amazing city. Um, and, and honestly, as I said earlier, I never thought I'd make it to a market as big as Pittsburgh to begin with. And, you know, because of the way things went down in Pittsburgh, I actually at the end was the was the general manager. And it was solely because the station had been sold and I wasn't going to keep that job as general managers. They were whoever the new company was. They were going to bring somebody in. And I knew that. 
Um, but I was like at a crossroads, like, you know, do I deal with higher up in management? Do I step back into programming? What do I do? I was still doing music radio as well as talk radio. And when I got the opportunity in Dallas and I flew down and met with Dan Bennett, who is still the market manager in Dallas, and he was at that time too. Um, and I was blown away by Dan and, uh, and the ticket, you know, here's this radio station, 5,000 watts at 1310 on the dial doing all sports. And I'm in Pittsburgh with a massive FM signal playing AC music and, uh, and a smaller AM. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? And I took the job and I drove, you know, from Pittsburgh to Dallas and I'll never forget this. It was on Labor Day weekend in 1997. And the reason I'll never forget it is that's the weekend that Lady Di was killed in the car accident. Oh, wow. So on my drive down, I found out on the radio about Princess Diana. And it was Labor Day 1997. And I remember, you know, you're in your car by yourself. I got it stacked to the ceiling. My family's still back in Pittsburgh. We're, I'm going to Texas. I, I don't think I'd step foot in Texas in my life. And I'm leaving an AM-FM combo to go to work at a 5,000-watt AM. And I mean, in the course of that trip, my emotions went from, this is going to be great, it's all sports, to, holy hell, my career's over. I'm going to a 5,000-watt AM. What am I doing? I, you know, my music radio days are over. What if this sports radio thing doesn't work? Because, you know, in 97, there weren't that many all-sports radio stations. Sure. Um, so... Uh, but it turned out, obviously, to be one of the greatest decisions of my life. I, I, uh, I have so many people to thank for that, not only because of Dan Bennett, and, but the company Susquehanna, which was an amazing company with David Kennedy and Nancy Vaith Dubroff and, uh, you know, Dan Halliburton and the people in that company, Rick, you know, the, the guys in Atlanta and, and the markets they were in, San Francisco and Indianapolis, and I, you know, it was a whole new level of learning, you know, and, and, uh, and that's what I love about this business. I thought I knew a lot when I was in Pittsburgh and then I got to Dallas and I was like, I didn't know anything. I learned so much more. Um, and so the ticket is when I got into sports radio full time and here I am, you know, uh, 25 years later, you know, still, you know, doing nothing, basically being focused on sports radio. Uh, so that was my that was my entree into this format, and uh, it's been uh, it's been amazing, and I've it's it's served me extremely well, and and I'd like to think that you know all those people I had the chance to work with all you know helped shape who I am, and I learned a lot from each and every one of them. Too many to mention. So at the you're at the ticket, and you end up stay, staying there for about five or six years, and then from there you become the general manager of ESPN, which of the radio network, which is a I mean that's a, a big leap in and of itself. How did that come to be? So one of the things that you know I didn't even realize, but at the at the time when I was programming the ticket, uh, ESPN Radio was a joint venture between ESPN in Bristol and the ABC radio networks, which were located on Montfort Street in Dallas. Sure. And, and uh, the guys and women who worked in the, ES, the ABC radio network offices, they were responsible for affiliating ESPN to stations across the country. And they did all of their trafficking of their advertising. So they did all the backroom stuff for ESPN. Well, come to find out, many of those men and women at the ABC Radio Networks building were huge ticket fans. Uh, they loved the ticket. They listened to the ticket every day. Um, and at that time, the ticket was the only sports station, so we also were the ESPN affiliate. We carried their stuff at nights and weekends and all their play-by-play. -play. Okay. And so when, when the opening came up in Bristol, 
a guy by the name of T.J. Lambert, who headed up all the affiliation for the ABC radio networks for ESPN, mentioned my name to the folks in Bristol, and they uh, they interviewed me. And I, I talked to several people. It was a grueling interviewing process, and I was I was unbelievably intimidated. I mean, even after doing all that I've done in my radio career, I mean, it was. You know, this was ESPN at the height of ESPN. I mean, it was a juggernaut. It was carrying the Walt Disney Company at that time. This was 2003. I interviewed for the job late in 2002. um, Throughout, I mean, it took about six months. So from like July of 2002, and I I started in February of 2003 in Bristol. And uh, I'll tell you to this day, I, I I mean this sincerely. Every day that I went through those gates at ESPN, it was, a, I had a surreal moment in my, in my stomach, in my brain. I, I couldn't believe that this stupid little radio schmuck was, you know, running the radio network for ESPN. It's like, how could I be so damn lucky? It was like, it was, it was unbelievable that I was there. Uh, I still, I still sometimes have to pinch myself and remember what it was like to be there. So that was that was phenomenal. It was just you know right place, right time, I guess. And they really wanted to have somebody with a deep rooted radio background because they had so much TV influence at that company. And so I, I got lucky in the timing, and uh, you know they took a chance on me, and it was it was remarkable. And yeah, I mean I will tell you that's what's that's what's amazing about all these moves. There was a time when I was in Pittsburgh, Chachi, where I thought I would never leave Pittsburgh. There was a time in Dallas when I thought, I'll never leave Dallas. And, you know, and then that was a huge, I mean, every day at ESPN, I thought, I'm never leaving this place, man. There's bonuses. There's Disney stock. Life is great. (laughs) Uh, I had an office in New York. I had an office in Bristol. It's like, man, this is the, this is the shit. It's like, this is great. You know? And, uh. And then, then something came along, which I'm, I'm sure you're going to get to, but, uh, but it's been amazing. I'm curious about now you've programmed, you know, two massive major market sports stations. And so that's a, a heck of an education of, of, in and of itself. But now this transition into the network space and of all networks, ESPN, which is really the, the, the crown of, uh, it doesn't get any bigger than that in, in the sports world. What was that transition like? Yeah, it was, you know, it's funny. I, you only know what you know, right? So I think I think the reason the transition worked for me is because, and again, timing means so much. They needed, and this is my this is my hindsight view, and they may you know those that were there may disagree, but I think they needed me and I needed them. And what I mean by that is they needed an education on how local radio worked because. They were doing network radio in a certain way. And I'll tell you a story specific to that in just a minute. But, and then I needed time to understand how network radio works because it is a different animal. Um, and so I think, it, you know, everything was just aligned in a, in a beautiful way where, you know, they didn't ever see ratings. You know, you're sitting in Bristol and you're producing all these shows but the radio stations got the ratings. You didn't. You couldn't analyze them and look at them. And you only got what people shared with you. And so just trying to help them understand how ratings work and what that process is so that we can be more effective for the local radio stations. That was where my knowledge was. And I needed them to help me sort of understand how big we could be yet still be small. And uh, that's a lesson I'll always take from Dan Mason. That was one of Dan Mason's great lines. And, and Dan, who 
is just another one of my many mentors that I've had the good fortune of being around. You know, Dan, Dan would say, take, take something big and make it small, bring it down to, you know, that local community. And that's what we had to try to do on the network every day without mentioning specific places. And the story I wanted to tell you is this one. And I think this was a crystallizing moment and it was specific to the Mike and Mike show. And, you know, we were working so hard to make that show work and Greeny and Golick were just so committed and all in and they wanted to be the very best that they could be. And they had a mentality that was, you know, that permeated through ESPN, which is watch SportsCenter at night and then try to make that your morning show the next day. And so they would do that. But then they got caught up in what happens in network radio. They got caught up in all the markets they were in. So they would say, well, we're going to take the sports and earth stories, but then we're on in Des Moines, we're on in Chicago, we're on in pick markets, right? We're going to go into those local newspapers. We're going to find the stories in those markets. We're going to talk about all those things. And it wasn't working. And we were, and it was hard. It was really hard. It was like all this stuff from SportsCenter, then all this stuff from these individual markets. And, you know, there's like three producers working on the show and they're all trying to collate this stuff and make it work. And we got in a room one day and it doesn't matter who it was. It was a collective. It, that's, that's how I've always tried to manage. You get a team of people together and, and you come out of there unified. And we said, here's the mistake we're making. There's only one or two really big sports stories every day. Let's just talk about those. Forget all the other stuff. And it really became, instead of the mantra of let's watch all of SportsCenter, let's watch the first seven minutes of SportsCenter. And if it doesn't make the first seven minutes, we're not even going to talk about it on the radio show. And it was a crystallizing moment for everybody that is like, you know what, this is where play the hits came from. You know, there's, there's all these great stories and many of them are worth talking about, but we're trying to cover the whole country there's, there's going to be one or two stories that resonate, and that's what we have to be focused on. And Mike and Mike, to their credit, really, really latched onto that and, and did a remarkable job with it and sort of set the table you know, for the rest of the day. Man, that's, a, that's amazing. I had never thought of that, but that makes so much sense now. Uh, in, in, lo- looking back at it, I'm like, that's brilliant. I never even really thought that it was done the other way, but that's a, a tremendous idea. Well, something I learned from you recently, because you brought to my attention the, uh, the uh, interview with Ken Burns on 60 Minutes, that's a, that's a great example of what he talked about. You think preparing for a show is an additive process, but it's actually a subtractive process. And I didn't even realize how true those words were when I heard Ken Burns say them. It made me flash back to that ESPN story. We basically were trying way too hard to do way too much. And when we started subtracting from that show prep, we actually made the product demonstrably better. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing that. That's a great advice and I'm sure uh, very useful for uh, hopefully people that are listening. So from ESPN and what an amazing gig and experience that was and had to have been, you then go and work for a billionaire, uh, Dan Snyder, and you take the COO position of his broadcasting company, Red Zebra. How did that come to be? So there was a guy at ESPN who was a remarkable leader, uh, still is, uh, a guy by the name of Mark Shapiro. And Mark was the head of all of programming at ESPN, and he was this prodigy. I mean, I think when I went to ESPN, Mark was 20-something, and he was running all of programming at ESPN under George Bodenheimer, who was the president. And Mark was the most motivating person I've ever been around, a remarkable leader, great talent. And uh, Mark left ESPN during my tenure. 
And uh, Mark went to work for Dan Snyder, who also at that time, uh, aside from owning the Washington Redskins, owned Six Flags, the amusement park company. And he named Mark the CEO of Six Flags. And Mark brought a couple of people with him from ESPN to Six Flags. And, uh, and then Dan uh, wanted to start this radio network. And uh, I didn't even, I, I wasn't, you know, I knew Mark. I had a couple of meetings with him. I admired him. I didn't think he knew that much about me. But when Dan had this opening, Mark Shapiro said, hey, we had a guy running ESPN that I think you should talk to. And uh, he gave Dan Snyder my name. And uh, I'll never forget that day when Dan called me and said, hey, I, I want to talk to you. I'm going to send my helicopter. Uh, I, ended up, uh, not, I ended up not riding on his helicopter, which I should have figured out a way to do that. But I, I said, look, I, I said, are you going to be in New York anytime soon? I'm already in New York. I don't have to ride your helicopter. He goes, oh, as a matter of fact, I'll be in New York next week. So we got together in person in New York. I should have held out for the helicopter. Ride. I can't be, I can't believe you passed on the helicopter ride, man. That would have been worth the, uh, the admission ticket alone. Yeah, so, uh, we had dinner in, in New York and we talked and, uh, not long after that, Dan asked me to come run his company. And it went, and look, he had, he had three DC area stations. He had a station in uh, Richmond and a station in um, Norfolk, Virginia beach. And his dream was, and his desire was because he had this amazing brand, the Washington football team. Now at the time, the Washington Redskins, his, his desire was to build this mid Atlantic broadcast company. And then we were going to go public. And so you know, I didn't know that much about IPOs and going public and all those things. And I, I thought that I read up on it. Mark and I talked a lot and I conferred with a lot of people that I, you know, admire and have been mentored by over the years. And it, it became apparent that this was a, a, a potential once in a lifetime opportunity. Now, keep sure. in mind, this was this was February of 2007. I had been at ESPN only four years, again, thinking I would never leave there. Um, so I, I went to work for Dan in early 07. And uh, we quickly went from about five radio stations. We purchased, got up to about 13 radio stations. And then the crash happened in 2008. And again, timing. I, I've talked about when timing has been on my side and I've been very lucky. Like when I went to work for ESPN, this was a case where timing was unlucky. Now I say that I'm a glass half full guy in a course of over a little over three years with Dan Snyder. I learned how to negotiate and buy radio stations and how to quickly sell radio stations. Cause once the crash happened, we had to get rid of them. Plus I was in board meetings with billionaires sure. who would casually talk about the stock market and investing and, you know, from a, from a high level, I really truly believe it was my MBA Chachi. I mean, it was my, it was my MBA in broadcasting. I, I knew, I thought again, I thought I knew a lot about advertising and sales and programming, but I didn't know how all the financing worked and, and it became a whole different level of education that I, again, have zero regrets. And in fact, I'm quite grateful and thankful for, and I know a lot has been written and said about Dan Snyder, and I'm not here to judge what's true and not true. I will just say this. He treated me and my wife wonderfully and did everything he said he was going to do as a boss. For those of you who don't know Dan Snyder, uh, Dan Snyder's uh, a billionaire. He started, I believe, it was um, 
uh, advertising company. I think they did like inside malls and doctor's offices. And he became a millionaire, if I recall, like he's a college student, was a millionaire by the time he was a college student, started this company. I think he ended up selling it to a gigantic agency for hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, bought the, uh, uh, the Washington, the now the Washington football team, uh, built this network. But I, I think at one time too, when he took his first company public, he was like maybe the youngest or one of the youngest people ever to have a publicly traded company. Guy was just uh, in, in a marketing uh, business genius. So to have that ki- type of education is, I could, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall in some of those meetings. That is a, an amazing education. Yeah. I was doing radio, which I love, but it was the meetings that I, I found myself just fascinated by because it was, you're right. It was like, I was like the fly on the wall because I couldn't speak in those terms or in those, that language. I had to learn it. And, uh, and they, they, yeah, they taught me a lot. And, and to your point about Dan, he's self-made. I mean, he grew up, his dad was a writer for UPI and his dad was a huge Redskins fan and all Dan ever wanted to do was buy that team for his dad and make his dad proud. And and he got, his dad was still alive when he bought it, passed away shortly thereafter. But uh, yeah, there's, there's a, there's some great stories there too. And again, experiences uh, that, that I would have never had if I hadn't taken those, those leaps of faith at the time. So that was my broadcast and, and financial MBA years. Those, those few years in Washington, DC. Sure. Were you in, so did you go to DC? Were you living in Washington, DC at that time? Yeah, I was living in Bethesda, Maryland, as a matter of fact. Yeah, got it. And then from there, so the recession, and I was part of that too. That's when I was let go from uh, from Clear Channel. So I know that time very well. So then, in two thousand and ten, you uh, go back, I think, to Dallas as the head of uh, CBS Radio Sports Programming and Talk uh, at uh, at the KRLD, the Fan, and the Texas State Network. Yeah, that was. Uh that was again, relationships through the years that have been built and Dan Mason was running CBS and, you know, they had a couple of opportunities in some other markets. And, uh, you know, my wife and I had just had our son Hudson, uh, and Amy and I were, you know, sitting down one night in DC and it's like, look, you know, all that's changed here. Let's make a list of of where we want to live. And Amy grew up in Houston, went to SMU, uh, and so Dallas was on both of our lists. I had children here from my first marriage that were now adults. And, uh, I think we had one other city on that list and it was, it was Phoenix. Cause we both happened to love Scottsdale in the Phoenix area, but it became apparent we wanted to get back to Dallas. And, you know, at the time, one of the greatest legends and one of the guys I look up to most was at KRLD, um, and uh, and that was that was Tom Bigby, who just passed away last year. And uh, Tom was a legend from WIP in Philadelphia, did some amazing work with the ticket in Detroit and uh, was running KRLD. And, and uh, it just so happened that Tom was getting ready to wind down. And so, again, luck of the timing, uh, you know, they Tom was welcoming of me, replacing him. Uh, Chris Olivero was very involved in it and Dan Mason was very involved in it. And I had a chance to come in and be part of Carol D, which was cool because it was CBS, which was a company I'd long admired and Dan Mason, who I looked up to, Sure, but it was also incredibly awkward because they were competing against the ticket. Uh, you know, and I, the ticket was such a huge part of my DNA and all of the guys that were on the ticket when I left in 2003 were still on the air with the exception of one guy that was actually on the fan when I got there on KRLD and moved across the street. And so that, that was weird um, just from a pure competitive perspective, but still, you know, terrific. It got us back to Texas. Um, and I've been lucky to be able to stay in Texas since we made that move, even though I've now worked for, you know, CBS 
for those two years than iHeart and now Cumulus. I've been fortunate that they've allowed me to continue to have my residency here in, in the great state of Texas. So we're, uh, we're loving life and uh, feel very lucky. So geographically, that move was great for you because you've been able to stay there now the entire time, which is fantastic. But you, you did leave CBS after a couple of years and then went to iHeart to be the VP of their uh, sports network. What was that like? And Fox Sports as yeah, well. Yeah, it was great. I, look, I... Um, Again, it's a lot of times who you come in contact with and who you know. There was a guy I worked, I competed against in Pittsburgh by the name of Carl Anderson. Carl, Carl was running the uh, jazz station in Pittsburgh when I was at WTAE and WBTY. And we got to know each other and stayed in touch a little bit through the years. And Carl had taken a position at iHeart at that time on uh, Tom Pullman's programming team. And uh, he he recruited me and and it's funny you brought up, you know, living here and this being my residence. I mean, the Fox Sports Network is in Los Angeles. You know, there was some talk about moving. And I, I just said, look, I, I love working for the guys at CBS and I just don't want to move. I've moved so many times. You know, my wife went to SMU. She loves it here. We're, you know, we feel like Texas is home. I, again, I got adult children here. Uh, and uh, and iHeart was nice enough to say, we're cool with that. You can live in Dallas. We want you to have this job. Um, and I was only at iHeart a couple of years. It was a transitional time. You know, Mr. Hogan was still there and Pittman and Bressler were taking over. Sports wasn't their most important thing, but they did it really well. And, you know, what I found out at iHeart is several things. One, uh, you know, the Premier Network is an amazingly run network. Um, and uh, and there's some really good people there. And Don Martin, who is at KLLC in Los Angeles and had been a very instrumental figure in, in Fox Sports Radio since the untimely passing of the great Andrew Ashwood, who used to run Fox Sports, who we all admired and died way too young from cancer. Don had, had really done a remarkable job. And I'm not going to say that for the first time, well, maybe I will say for the first time, I mean, I, I felt like I had something to offer, but you know what? I didn't feel like I was that needed because Don was a good leader and had, and, and had done a really good job. And Carl was just trying to really beef up the management team. And so, you know, we, we had to work through sort of, you know, the right lanes and the right things. I'll, I'll say that, you know, it was just, it, it, it didn't end up being as great a fit as, as I would hope, but Julie Talbot, you want to talk about one of the most remarkable leaders in our business, just the greatest lady who puts people first. You know, she mentored me through sort of that process and respecting, you know, what Don had created because I didn't want to step on his toes because he's a great leader in and of himself. And we had, you know, we had a lot of really good shows and products and, and I was able to work with some of the great PDs inside the iHeart I I radio stations. So it was good. And, and the app was coming along. They were trying to figure out what to do with sports on the iHeart radio app. Uh, I met Larry Linieski there, who now works for Westwood One. We're back together working together. Sure. Um, but it just, you know, it never, that one never really, I was commuting to LA every other week. I loved it because I, I love everything I get to do in this business. I try not to take it for granted, but it never quite locked in. You know, I never got quite in a groove there and it's probably much my fault than anybody else's. Um, but I, you know, I, I left there with great respect 
for, for those folks and what they had done and knew that they were in great hands, especially when they hired Scott Shapiro to come out and run the Fox Sports Network, who worked with who I worked with at ESPN. And Scott's done a remarkable job. I think the Fox Sports Radio product is as good as it's ever been. And him and Don have done that together. And, and I, I, I have admired them and cheered for them from afar. Um, and, you know, look, it's, it's interesting. I came into Dallas uh, because Dallas was still a network hub for Cumulus because they took over when they bought Citadel. They got the ABC radio networks. So I came into the offices in Dallas, the ABC radio network offices, which was now part of Cumulus, to go over the iHeart sports stations and which ones were going to carry Westwood One's NFL football. And uh, I was sitting with Dennis Green in his office at the old network building here in Dallas. And we were going through every iHeart market and talking about the football season. So this was probably about this time of year. And he said, hey, uh, John Dickey's in town and wants to have lunch. Uh, since we're doing this, let's let's finish up and we'll go meet him you know, down at the W for lunch. And I, I knew John because he, they were a big ESPN affiliate. We, every time we would go to the all-star game when I was at ESPN, the Dickies were there. And so we get to lunch. It's not just John, it's also Lou. Oh, wow. And uh, they, ask, they ask how it's going at iHeart. And I give them a little, you know, tell them how it's going. And I'm, you know, finding my way. But I, I love it. There's great people. We got a lot to accomplish. And uh, they, they said they'd really like for me to come to work for them. And uh, that was in uh, 2014. And by the time we got through the negotiation and the discussions, I started here in, in January of 2015. So now in my sixth year with Cumulus and Westwood One, obviously, the, you know, there's been a lot of changes. That was January 15 was, you know, 10 months before the Dickies were then, you know, removed from the company and Mary Berner took over. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, they I, I, I really like John and Lou. They were great to me. Obviously, they gave me an opportunity that I still have today, thanks to them. Uh, but I also have enjoyed the evolution of the company and where we're at and, you know, working for a guy that I know you get to work with day to day now, Mike McVeigh, who has always been a hero of mine, who I forgot to mention. That's when I first came across Mike McVeigh was Charleston, West Virginia. So it's interesting how these things go back. Right. So oh, no kidding. that job in Charleston, Mike McVeigh's company consulted us. Jerry King was the guy who I worked directly with. But Mike McVeigh was this guy on a pedestal that, you know, I thought was great. So I got to work with McVeigh there, then Alan Burns in Pittsburgh. And, you know, then McVeigh comes back around as, as this job came to be. And I got in with Mike and, you know, it's the first time we had really worked, you know, together on the management team. So that was great. And, and then Mary, you know, really changed the culture of the company in, in, a, in a properly evolutionary way. Uh, and uh, Suzanne Grimes, who runs Westwood One, is the president of Westwood One, has become a, a mentor and a teacher and we have some amazing leadership with Mary and Suzanne and Brian Phillips on the programming side, uh, who I worked with in Dallas when I was at the ticket, Brian was at the Wolf. So a lot of these people come back around in your life. And, and I say that to say, I just had a conversation with somebody this morning about this. It's not hard to be a good human. It's not hard to be good to people and be nice. And in our business, there's a chance that the people you're talking to and, and hopefully treating right today will be your bosses tomorrow. And it's happened to me. It's happened to me in my career. And uh, I thank God for that upbringing we talked about with my great parents who taught me to respect everybody, treat everybody the same uh, and, and, you know, treat, treat people the way you want to be treated and be a good human. And uh, I, I am grateful that I had those lessons young in life 
and have had them reinforced by great leaders that I've worked for through the years because it, it definitely has shaped you know, where I'm at and who I've had the good fortune of being around in my career. Man, such great advice. And I could not uh, agree more. You treat people so incredibly well. And I think, unfortunately, as a whole, the industry sometimes uh, gets a reputation for uh, for eating our own. Um, and I love the fact that you really just take care of people so well and uh, treat them well. And I'm so grateful for the support that you've given us over the years. Uh, something I wanted to mention is Carl Anderson was actually uh, very instrumental in Benstown and helping us early on back when he was at uh, Citadel at Citadel um, Media Networks, uh, ABC Radio Networks, and he was very helpful to us and is a great guy. Carl is now, I think he runs a car dealership. Is that correct? In the car business in Tucson, Arizona, and he's, he's doing quite well. I, I hate that he's not still in our business because I think he's a good leader, and I, I learned a lot from Carl, too. He's, he's, a, he's a sharp, sharp guy. So I didn't know that about Benstown, but now I remember that Citadel was very involved with you guys at the beginning. And uh, that's that's pretty cool. That's when so much was happening when uh, John and Lou bought uh, Citadel and then um, and then Dial and it was all moving very quickly. But yes, it was eventually Mike and uh, Mike McVeigh and Dennis Green who ended up finishing our deal. But it was really Carl and John Rosso at the time oh, who wow. kind of got, got things going and really, really good guys. And uh, yeah, you've worked with some incredibly talented people. I worked with uh, Don and his wife Robin back when I was the program director here at MyFM and uh, Don's an incredibly bright guy still at uh, uh, KLAC today and uh, involved there. I'm really good friends with uh, Dave Weiss, their, their marketing director. So they're they're very busy. They got all the Dodger games here. Yeah. So. Well, Don's good, but let's be honest. His wife can program circles around the man. Robin's the star. She's amazing. she is she's she's incredible she is incredible yeah no early i mean this was very early on in my my career and so i got very fortunate was programming here at a young age but don taught me a lot early on i mean candidly i was kind of scared shitless of him at the beginning because he's such a strong personality but he's a big personality yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he would he would pull me into his office and he great gave me some great advice over the years and certainly grateful for that. Uh, man, uh, one more person I want to mention because you've got so many talented people in, in your life, but your wife, Amy, is also the host of a fantasy football uh, podcast called First in Ten, which is uh, which is incredible. So you've got talent all around you, man, yeah. your dad, your brother, your sister, your wife. How do you do? Do you find yourself giving advice to uh, to? them or do you just more kind of listen no i look i i'm the i'm the trailer on on that i i just you know pick up the pieces they're way better and smarter than me yeah my wife is the real time see i just took that shot at don i'm glad you brought up amy because amy runs circles around me too uh my wife is amazing she's an artist she she makes beautiful mosaic guitars that are just unreal uh and she's doing really well with that business uh, she's a real estate agent. She's really good at that. And uh, she does this podcast called First and Tens, which uh, they've been on hiatus for a while because she got so busy with her art. But they're getting ready to start back up. And she does it with a woman named Jasmine Sadri, who also does mornings in Nashville um, and on WKDF with Paul Coffey. And uh, her and Jasmine have a great chemistry. They're very good friends. They're both incredibly hilarious. Uh, it's definitely gets the E for explicit, just to give everybody a fair warning. Uh, they like to cuss, uh, but they're very they're very creative cussers, I must say. Um, but the the and here's the other thing I love about it. 
I mean, my, my wife will study and research and she's a big football fan to begin with, but she gets into it. Like she gets deep into the, the stats and the details and, and has some really good information, which is sometimes demeaning, right? When I'll, I'll bring up something about a player and she'll be like, no, nah, you're not even close to right. This is what happened with that player. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm just the, I'm just the sports programming guy. What do I know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, thanks for bringing her up because she's amazing. And, uh, nope. Please send us a link if you don't mind, and we'll include her podcast in the uh, show notes. Love to include that. And any pictures of the mosaic guitars, those sound incredible. Are they acoustic guitars? So she takes acoustic guitars. You can't play them. It's just an art piece. They're meant to be hung as a piece of art, but she takes acoustic guitars, sometimes used ones, sometimes, you know, inexpensive new ones. And, uh, yeah, she, uh, she sands them down and she, she makes incredible designs hand cut glass she cuts every piece by hand no no two are alike uh and she can do logos and she does you know rock and she's done a, a rock series like an elton john guitar or prince guitar grateful dead you know the allman brothers and a lot of them are commissioned pieces but uh it's high-end art it's beautiful and uh yeah she's got a website called glassaxes.com as in you know g-l-a-s-s-a-x-e-s glassaxes.com if the pictures really don't do them justice the pictures are beautiful but they're in 3D in real life, they're they're absolutely gorgeous. Sounds amazing. Yeah, we'll definitely include those in the show notes as well. Uh, thank you for that. Two more quick questions for you. So one, and I like to ask my sports friends this, would you rather be the manager of the Chicago Cubs or the head coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers? Uh, Cubs manager, un- undoubtedly, not even a hesitation. Second question for you, do you think, I know that Dan Mason was very instrumental throughout your career, and Dan has gone on to do some play-by-play. I think he calls some college basketball basketball games do you think uh, you'll someday go and do that when you decide to kind of uh, maybe uh, uh, retire or slow down a little bit it's funny you say that I don't miss I don't miss being a disc jockey anymore I did for a long long time on a music radio station but I do miss doing play-by-play and I the extent of my play-by-play was high school I mean I did you know, high school basketball, high school football, high school hockey, because I grew up in Wisconsin when I was in high school. I was in Wisconsin and I did hockey games outdoors, standing in snowbanks in the corner, you know, broadcasting play by play of hockey. And you'd hear me sniffling all the way through because I was so cold. My nose was running. Uh, but uh, <laughs> and I, I miss that. I, I, you know, I think a dream of mine is just to even do like one minor league baseball game, you know, and then if that turned into something, that'd be cool. Uh, but I would, I would love that opportunity to be in the booth and, uh, and have a chance to experience that. Yeah. It's that, that's a love for sure. Well, I would l- love to hear that game. I hope you're, I hope you do do that, my friend. All right. But I know I said two questions, but I've got a bonus question for you. So you've got two adult daughters, Danielle and Amber, and then you also have two stepsons, Michael and Jason. And obviously your dad was incredibly instrumental in your career and your sister and your brothers, and you all got into radio. Do you see any of your kids following your career path? So my oldest stepson, Michael, who just turned 40, uh, is a manager for the studio Movie Grill. But for about eight years, he was doing part-time sports talk on the fan, KRLD, here in Dallas. No kidding. Um, and, yeah, and I, and I did bring him on when I was the program director. And the reason I did is Michael was that kid, you know, when he was growing up in my, my household. He was the kid that could remember every stat, everything about everything. And actually, when I came back to the fan, it's when the UFC was taking off. And Michael had taken a huge interest in UFC and was going to Las Vegas for the fights and uh, really was incredibly knowledgeable about the sport and what it was and where it was going. And, 
and uh, was doing special reports on some of the UFC pay-per-view events. And then that parlayed that into a weekend show. His management job in the movie industry uh, finally got, you know, they, he kept getting promotions and he had to give up the on-air thing. So he did do that. My daughters had zero interest, uh, which, which is fine. And uh, Jason has always been more of a technical guy and uh, works for a, a, a company that houses records for all kinds of industries digitally. Um, so they've all been very successful. I'm extremely proud of, of all of them. Um, but no, I, you know, I, I think I've successfully steered them away <laughs> to some extent. Although my, Michael was really good because he liked to argue too, which made him a good sports talk host. Um, but I, I think he made the right choice. He's doing really well in the business he's in. And it's been really hard for him the last you know year and a half because of COVID with the, being in the theater business, but he's, sure. he's managed and maintained and is doing, doing great. Hey man, want to thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a lot of fun and uh, so great to learn about you. Well, it's very kind you to do it. I don't, I'm not sure anybody will care a whole lot about all this, but I will say that I've had a, a wonderful and amazing ride and I hope it lasts a lot longer because I feel like there's still a lot in the tank. I want to keep doing this and be a part of it. It keeps me young and, and I find great joy in watching great talent grow and succeed and uh, watching great brands grow and succeed and, and uh, getting to be part of the Westwood One sports broadcast of the NFL and the NCAA. It's just, it's, it's a joy and uh, want to keep on keeping on. So thanks for giving me a chance to tell my story and uh, thanks for all you do for the radio industry with your webinars and your production and everything. You guys are an amazing company. You should be really proud and uh, grateful to have a chance to, to be part of that ecosystem as well. Thanks for listening to Chachi Loves Everybody. If you like the show, we hope you'll leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been a Benstown Podcast production, hosted and researched by Dave Chachi Dennis, executive producer Kevin Horton, show coordinator Juliana Parisi, and Laura Keeney.